Well, welcome everyone to Overdrinks. Uh, please excuse my voice and the intermittent hacking that you will inevitably hear on this episode. I'm I'm coming, I'm 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 on the right track. I'm coming back from the flu, but it it still has a little bit a hold of me. But I've got with me who I'm hoping they can all really take take the conversation, so I don't have to talk that much. <laughs> But I've got with me uh, Sherry Van Manen, uh, Garrett Schumann, and Annie Nykirk. Hello. Hey. Hello. So, uh, as is tradition, why don't we go around the circle and say what we're drinking to start off with? All right. Well, I'll start because mine's probably the least interesting. Um, this is Annie. I, and... I don't know. I don't know about that. Annie. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, as is apropos, I guess, for a parent episode, I am um, pregnant right now, so I will not be partaking in the drinking of the alcohol, so I have a lovely, refreshing lemon-lime seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> lovely and refreshing. Yeah, very nice. I have a seasonal um, IPA from a local brewery in Ypsilanti, Michigan, where I live, the Arbor Brewing Company brewery and ipsy it's a part of their tilted earth series this is the quote-unquote hazy ipa and for those of you who can't see it is pretty hazy so i've this t- tonight's the first time i've had it i saved it for a special occasion so it's pretty good yeah what's i mean i i don't really get into the ipas anymore and i think the hazy ipa craze really took off after I stopped drinking them. What is there any difference other than just the way they look? Uh they I mean they generally have a different flavor profile. So they'll they'll have like more of a fruity citrus character like without actually having orange or anything in it. Um I guess I don't know what makes them hazy. I I really don't, but they're they're really the quite the thing in Michigan. There's a brewery in Michigan called Old Nation that has this incredibly famous hazy IPA that they made because they didn't like the style of beer. And then it's like their calling card. It's kind of like their Bolero or something. <laughs> so, so yeah, they're definitely trendy, but uh, uh, they can be, be pretty tasty. Okay. Well, I am also a little bit boring. I am not pregnant, but I have an 8 a.m. meeting. So I'm, go- I'm <laughs> going with a pomegranate iced tea. <laughs> sorry sorry to make you the only one that's uh, drinking, Garrett, but I'm so also not. <laughs> the parent okay. episode, only one of us. We're going to have a baby very soon, so I got to get it in. You got to get it in. Yeah, yeah, you I do. mean, yeah. since, since I'm coming back from this, I didn't think it was a good idea to to drink what i would normally drink um so i'm just i'm just having some uh oolong tea uh still from my favorite uh tea place that i used to go to in china i really stockpiled before i left so i've still got some which is very very nice in my uh well not my i should say my wife's uh effing birds mug do you guys know that um that instagram oh my god all right so there's this Instagram and Twitter account called Effing Birds, E-F-F-I-N Birds. Um, I think there's no G. Yeah, there's no G. Um, and it is stuff. 
if you can see, it's stuff like this. It's just like a beautiful picture of a bird and then something that's just nasty or foul on it. This this mug says eat farts. <laughs> I think so, I've seen magnets or something with their They have a lot of merch. Yeah. Yeah. They have a book too. But anyway, it's, this episode it's, is brought to you by Effing Effing Birds. birds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we should uh, get into our topic uh, for tonight, and um, and that is uh, that you know what what does it mean to be a composer who is also a parent, or rather a parent who is also a composer? So we've got uh, parents uh, at different stages along their children's uh, um lives, development, whatever you want to say. And then we've, uh, Garrett is expecting, when are, when are you and your wife expecting, Garrett? The due date is February 9th. Oh, very soon. So we're coming yes. up on it. Yeah. Oh, I man. don't know what will arrive first, this episode of Lexical Tones. <laughs> definitely or, this or Definitely this episode. <laughs> uh, I mean, she'll this be is... full term on Sunday, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. On Sunday, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, thirty su- Sunday is thirty-seven weeks. So, yeah, well, this is coming out on Monday, buddy. So, <laughs> <laughs> we it, it might be a race. <laughs> we went to the OBGYN uh, this afternoon to get the final ultrasound and to see what the baby's position and stuff. And um, I'm pleased to report that the head is where it's supposed to be. That is good news. So That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, Annie, you you mentioned that you're pregnant. When is your second coming along? Uh, number two is due on May 7th. So I've just passed the halfway. I'm 23 weeks now. So. All right. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yep. Going to wrap up the semester. Graduation's May 4th. And so hopefully <laughs> if the baby's on time, I'll be able to finish it out and then uh, go on leave. <laughs> so... I mean, Garrett, th- uh, was this your idea? Maybe. Um, I think it I mean, was. I knew, I knew that there were uh, parents in the group, in the collective, mm-hmm. and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, um, you know, just talking to friends who have kids more generally, and then also uh, what the impact or experience, you know, as a composer is when you have a kid and especially like, um, with my wife and I, she has the full-time job. And so when she goes back to work in May around the time, Annie, when you're due, I'm going to be stay at home, dad composer. So, right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I suppose just like we did with drinks, we should go around the circle and those of us who have children should like, you know, how, how old are our kids and, you know, all that stuff. I'll go first. I have two kids. I have uh, two girls, five and a half and three and a half, Violet and Sloan. Uh, I have one uh, daughter, Jennifer, who is uh, 21 months. She'll be two in April. And so uh, my two will be about two years apart when that happens in May. It's a good, it's a good spread. We have yeah. found at least. Your ears, yeah, right. Two two years apart, yeah. yeah. I have one daughter uh, whose name is Anne with an E as well. 
Um, oh, yay. Yay. And she is 19 and a sophomore in college. She's at Cleveland Institute of Art. So, Garrett, did you, I mean, is there anything, I don't, I don't you know, I wouldn't, you know, we're not experts or anything on, on being composer parents, but we do have some experience. So did you have questions? Well, and then we can all share our experiences as well. So one, one question I have that's definitely directed at the composer parent dynamic is what are times that your experiences with your children have made it into pieces? Cause like I'm working on a, an electronic piece that hopefully some of it will be done so we can listen to it in the delivery room. But Aww. with my, with my schedule, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's like a very, it's supposed to, it's very influenced by like this circumstance of like just something that'll be kind of ambient and long with uh, their source material recordings from like family heirlooms and stuff just to kind of like have on and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious, like, did any, have any of you, did any of you engage like in an artistic way, very intentionally with that experience um, in, in similar paths or different paths than this project that I'm, I've, I've kind of set myself to do? Uh, yes, I have. I can speak to that. I actually, um, it took me a while, but I actually just finished a piece, um, an, a chamber orchestra piece, an acoustic piece that I wrote based on a lullaby that we sing to my daughter. So um, it was a great experience because uh, it's like the first time that I have been able to collaborate with my husband. My husband is not a trained musician, but um, kind of learned to play bass guitar by ear and played in bands and stuff when he was younger. And um, he was an English major in college, so he's also great with words and likes to write poetry. So when my daughter was born, he wrote her a little poem, a little mantra that he would say to her um, to calm her or just to walk around and say to her, um, and then eventually he made up a little tune to sing to it. So he basically, he, my husband basically wrote her a little lullaby and it became something that we sang to her all the time. And um, so then I uh, took that and uh, made a, a theme and variations orchestra piece out of it. Um, so yeah, I actually just finished it uh, about two weeks ago. And so they're rehearsing it right now. It premieres next month. I'll let you know how it goes. But that was a, a really, a really fun process to first of all it was nice to I hadn't written an orchestra piece in a while and it was really nice to have that kind of motivation of you know figuring out how to turn this you know familial um, lullaby into a large-scale work and think about you know I chose variation forms so that I could kind of try and use different elements of like inspirations from our families to work into the piece into the variations so um, yeah, that was a really rewarding and fun um, way to kind of incorporate my daughter and, and my husband into my work. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. I I love that it's connected to something your husband created because mm-hmm. the, the piece that I'm working on was actually my wife's idea mm-hmm. because she wanted me to, she asked me to create something like this. So I felt like I was also creating something. 
mm-hmm. related to the baby as oh. she, she's creating it too, and um, and it's it it feels really good, like something. If if a friend of mine who doesn't have kids was coming up to me and and asking me about like any advice, even though we haven't had a baby yet, our baby yet, I would say like if you're the birth partner, like tr- get a project that you can do that's kind of like alongside the pregnancy so you you're like building towards something or feel like you're contribute because you because you often at least in my experience as a birth partner you don't feel like you're you don't often feel like you're doing as much as as the um person you know having the baby and it's uh, that for obvious reasons so yeah yeah can confirm <laughs> So I have something along those lines as well. Um, This goes back a ways because, as I mentioned, my daughter is 19 now. But um, when we first moved to Michigan, my daughter was two when I took the job at Interlochen. And I met one of our creative writing faculty members. Her name is Anne-Marie Oman. She writes beautiful uh, novels and tells stories. And she also writes poetry. And she and I were talking about how to work together and come up with a project. Well, unbeknownst to me, after that meeting and getting to know one another, she wrote a poem about my mother and myself entitled Two Rows, R-O-W-S. And at the end of the poem, there's a line about a third row woven in like a girl, like a child. And the child, um, the description of that child is dressed in sun and wild. And so I took the line from that poem and used it as a title in a piece that is a description of my daughter. It's not necessarily meant for the audience to know that. It's just an an orchestra piece that is in my interpretation of what my then three-year-old daughter looked like when she was just dancing on the beach, completely free, no particular rhythm, just that I thought that line absolutely captured that, just dressed in sun and wild. Um, So the orchestra piece is mixed meter, um, bouncing back and forth in my attempt to capture that image in my mind. Um, That was written, that was started when my daughter was three, but as a parent um, (laughs) who ended up being a single parent with a Mm full-time job, that piece wasn't finished until about 2010, so some seven years later, because I was writing it for me. This was not a commission that needed to be anywhere anytime soon. And it was premiered in 2011. So there are a lot of times when the projects I was working on for myself were put on a shelf and had to you know, play second fiddle to anything else I was doing, whether it was work or a commission or something I needed to do as a parent. But that piece is absolutely about about my daughter, but it, it's also about us as a family. That's great. That's great. I hear that too with uh, things taking a lot longer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your own projects, yes. <laughs> um, I have, uh, I guess I have two that, two pieces that I've kind of involved. Um, this, this sounds terrible to say. But uh, that I involved my oldest daughter in, but not n- nothing for my youngest daughter. <laughs> well, oh, I hope better, she doesn't listen to this podcast. You better get on that. <laughs> yeah, it's like photographs. You take all the photographs of the older child. And- yes, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, I think it was when 
My oldest was probably within, not, not yet a year old. So, but old enough to be like sitting up by herself and like playing with toys on the, on the floor. And, um, I was doing this project for percussion ensemble and the whole idea of the project was just time. How, how do we feel time and, and how material is the articulator of time? And I really wanted to explore that. So for each of the four percussionists, I chose a different kind of um, uh, non-musical thing to record. And basically, I recorded that thing, whatever it was, and really paid attention to um, okay, this is when sound is being made. This is when sound is not being made. And that becomes the, basically the durations of when sound is to be produced in the piece. So, um, the other things were like, I was on a bus and basically I would record the, uh, times. This is when I was still in China. Um, I would record the times of when we were moving versus when we were not moving and when we were not moving, that's when sound happened for the percussionist. And another was I recorded a conversation between two people in a uh, in a in like a tea house. And I only only when the uh, only when the woman was speaking, that's when you know uh, sound would happen. Or I recorded like a construction site, and only when this very specific drill was going was when uh, something would happen. And then the last one was I recorded my daughter playing with pots and pans. And whenever she made sound, that's when the percussionist makes sound in the piece. Um, which, uh, you know, that it, it was fun to just like sit with her and really, really f be focused on her for for the, <clears throat> ten, the 10 minutes, which is the 10 minutes of the piece. Um, and then the other one, the, the one I think I like even more than that, though, is uh, this piece called Lingering Garden. Um, and it's, uh, it's a fixed media piece. And um, it's about a, uh, one of the Chinese classical gardens uh, in Suzhou, the, the one that's actually called Lingering Garden. And the whole, I, I, was, I was there uh, with Kate and, and Violet, and uh, I was taking um, field recordings and Violet at this point was old enough that she was walking and she, you know, she was just off kind of on her own. And, um, I was trying, I was really honing in on these insects that were, that were really, really fascinating and, and you could get very close to them and they would still do this, their chirping. So I was trying to get close to the insects and Violet just kept following me around <laughs> and about 20 feet behind her was this big group of Chinese people that were following her around. <laughs> so no matter where I went, I was like followed by a lot of noise. And I was just like, oh, come on. I just want to get these bugs. Um, and, uh, you know, after that, I went back and listened to what I had. And I have this uh, in, in the piece around... I don't know, uh, it's an eight minute piece, so around six or seven minutes. I have about a minute of her in her, you know, uh, barely over a year voice, just kind of making those, making those sounds, you know, those, those vocal babbling sounds. And um, it's my favorite, it's my, it's my favorite 
performance situation of my own, of like one of my own pieces because the the surrounding music uh there or the music that surrounds these like vocal sounds from violet it's very it's all like um uh tibetan singing bowls so it's very very like calm and peaceful and every every time that piece gets performed and i'm i'm there to to listen to it it just immediately like takes you right back to that moment and right back to that age mm-hmm. where you know violet is just this little person and you can hear her little footsteps on the on the stone path and um yeah it's it's kind of it that that kind of thing is i think is really is really special when when you have that that thing that I'm that that produces this really visceral memory mm-hmm. and that and when she was when she was younger that's what we were doing all the time we were taking audio recordings of her I haven't used any of it you know it's just there for me to go find at some some point and say oh my god that's what she sounded like you yeah. should wait until she like graduates high school or something yeah yeah <laughs> And that's her graduation present as a fixed right. media piece. So all of the audio recordings that you have from her whole life. Yeah. Or when she gets married, if that Ooh. happens. Just she- slip slip a thumb drive to the DJ, surprise her. I mean, that could be really good. Walk walk down the aisle to <laughs> Well that that's would a, not that's be a, a good bit, parent. That's a little bit like a composer proposing to their fiance with like a piece they wrote playing in the background that's a little much but <laughs> so, that's a, that's a true story about someone but i won't name them so Ooh. Yeah. Yes. maybe after maybe in the green room after the recording so. <laughs> I, I i love that story rob because i feel I already feel like the temptation to use like my Zoom recorder as a way to chronicle, but particularly because insofar as our our current child care plan is concerned, I'm going to be spending a ton of time with our child. And I've written, before we were even thinking about having kids, I wrote a an aleatoric piece for my niece who will turn three in March. And like, that was the first piece I wrote, like based on my experience with an infant and it was like super fun to do. And so Mm -hmm. I know that that I, I know it, it taps into a lot of my, like the things that excite me about composing at this point in my composing career, which is, how do I connect what I'm doing to the people that are around me, the place that's around me and that sort of thing. So I can already sense that I'm, it's going to be really difficult to resist just trying to capture as much of my experience with our child, like for potential use in a piece. Right. And I think that other than those two pieces, I've, I've really kind of shied away from it. Um, I mean, I, I was recording all the time, but I don't think I ever used any, anything because I don't know it, it, 
Does that whole like there there are definitely those parents that like you know never put photos or videos of their kids like up on social media or something like that. Um, and and I totally you know I I I get that I totally get that and I I felt like like that particular you know the the story in the, in the garden that particular thing that just kind of happened you know I wasn't I wasn't going after that. It was just that natural. was that yeah that was natural that was the reality of the situation, um, but I don't and you know this might change but I don't necessarily like record them with the intention of using it. You know it's what I mean? It's interesting that you say that because that's that's how mine happened. It we had this perfect day at the beach. I had this image of my three year old dancing, and then I was given the gift of a poem I was not expecting. Yeah. And so having those two things kind of come together all at the same time, I wanted to write this piece. But I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to go write this piece. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, I, and I think a little bit like, Annie, what you were saying about the piece you've written, you probably mm-hmm. never expected to use that lullaby as source material for a piece. Yeah, it wasn't something, yeah, well, certainly I didn't, you know, before she was born or anything, I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to turn a lullaby into it. You know, I'm going to write her a lullaby <laughs> or whatever. But just, um, yeah, I think once I heard my husband make a tune out of the words, then, then I mean, that kind of got my, you know, creative juices going. I was like, oh, this would be really cool to, you know, run with this and make this into a larger thing. And um, yeah, and it was a great experience to like collaborate with my you know now he jokes he's like I better get 10% of the royalties on this thing (laughs) and I'm like all right man he knows the game yeah you'll probably get about one dollar because I'll probably make about ten dollars from this (laughs) but um um, so but yeah it was fun to um you know like I recorded him singing it um and uh as you know happens with this is a, a tune that he just made up that over the months of He's not really seen. I mean, she's almost two now. So, um, the, you know, rocking her to sleep and all that stuff is kind of, I mean, we still sing to her, but, uh, you know, this was on a heavier rotation when she was an infant, when she was a baby. Um, and, uh, and it was fun to, you know, as he would continue to sing this song, this lullaby to her, uh, it would evolve, you know, the melody kind of changed a little bit as he would, you know, kind of, um, as he got more tired yeah right right or however long it had been so it was fun to like I recorded him I I transcribed what I remembered of him like hearing him do it in the early days and then I asked him to like I recorded him singing it it was fun to kind of hear how it had developed over the course of a few months or whatever so um yeah so it wasn't like you're right it wasn't a intentional from the beginning but I I will say as soon as it like kind of became a recognizable melody that he was doing over and over I was like oh I need to write a piece with this this is great (laughs) I have another question go for it so I have one of my possibly foolish aspirations um and I'm sure most of my aspirations are, are pretty I'll learn pretty quickly are unrealistic but so I run a, co- a concert presenting organization, and ab- as I become a parent, something I think a lot about is like, uh, how can 
that become more family friendly and that's like a different topic but I want to take our baby to concerts did you all do that did it work or did it not work what should I keep in mind go <laughs> uh we we waited a bit i i have now taken my daughter to a lot of the like the virginia symphony does a lot of family friendly you know sunday matinee saturday afternoon concerts that are kind of designed for kids and so we've taken her maybe to about three of those but i think she was probably close to a year um before we um before we did that so um but yeah, she loves it now, and it's it's nice now to. The tricky thing is just that if it's a matinee in a daytime thing, but the tricky thing is an evening concert. I mean, she's still young enough that she goes to bed so early that it wouldn't really work. But um, I'd love to hear what what the rest of the folks have done with that. When when my daughter was still in a car seat, so you know less than one, um, I played in a professional handbell group. And because that met at a church, I would bring her with me to those rehearsals and I would put her in front of the group and I didn't know what to expect. And she adored it. She would stay awake for the whole thing. She would turn her head. She was engaged. But I also knew that I had the benefit of a church nursery that was right there. If I had a problem, yeah. <laughs> I could walk down the hall and, and she would be okay. And, and I would have not be able to miss rehearsal. As she got older and she was mobile, I was still taking her to chamber rehearsals. I play flute uh, in addition to composing. So I would take her to these chamber rehearsals. And as long as she was quiet, which was, and perhaps I was very, very lucky, which was well into her two-year-old age, she might be dancing, but she was quiet and she would watch and she was engaged. Somewhere around two and a half to three years old, she became vocal enough that I could no longer do that anymore. Either be with her at a concert or a rehearsal or take her to something. She needed to be able to move around. Yeah. So like, if you're thinking family-friendly, be very aware of the ability for these kids to be able to move around. That would yeah. be you know, great for the kids, and it would make it, the parents' life so much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I cannot second that hard enough. <laughs> the 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 kids need to move, and you know the, the you're not it, if it's a concert situation where you know it's it's like a normal concert situation where everyone is expected to sit there. You're not doing the parents any favors either because they're not paying attention. Their their only task is to keep their children occupied and sitting and not causing a disturbance. So the kids aren't paying attention and the parents aren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, for, for kid friendly stuff, like just get rid of the chairs. Yeah. <laughs> completely. Yeah. Like absolutely completely. Um, with, with Violet, um, we might've taken her to a couple things when she was, you know, still, when my wife was uh, still like, uh, wrapping her, you know, she did, right. um, uh, baby she did a, yeah, she did baby wearing for, for a long, long time. Um, but then again, you know, like Annie said, the time, uh, you know, most concerts happen when she was already in bed, which is still kind of the case at, at this point, you know, we would have to 
go to something in the afternoon or or whatever. But also, I feel like once they become vocal enough, like you're you you need to plot out your exit strategy, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like I, you know, we we have plenty of kids that come to concerts at OU, but parents are very smart to always sit in the back, you know. And if it ever gets to that point, it's like, all right, we got to go. And and I would just know that going in if you want to take – and, I mean, you have some time because for the first year of their life, as long as they're not crying, like, they're just there. And, you know, right. they, they are where you are. <clears throat> and that's that's what the benefit of taking my daughter to those rehearsals was. Um, the, the time that you all mentioned, it wasn't her bedtime, but also the fact that it – it got her to really listening to whatever music she was used to that environment. And so I yeah. think mm-hmm. that's what helped keep her quieter longer mm-hmm. than another child might've done at the same age. One thing that my wife and I did when our first was born was knowing that we weren't going to be able to go uh, take, take her to a lot of concerts. I made kind of concert length playlists of of classical music to just kind of play in the house like during Mm -hmm. during and after dinner and um just to kind of give them the sense of like this is what a concert feels like this is how long it is this is the kind of music you would hear and i I, you know i don't know if i don't know if it worked or anything but it was (laughs) something that we just that we did right if you really wanted to promote concert things though one of the things as I listen to everybody and I remember um, those days as well, is think about concerts that are 30 minutes long, that right. don't have yeah. chairs, that, that right. are maybe outside in an area where the kids right. can On move. a lawn. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to ask, like, because with um, the, the concert presenting organization I run, but just in general, thinking about the field and inclusiveness, which has pertains to a lot of different things. And I think certainly making experimental or contemporary music, like something that families want to go to is not bad. In my Mm -hmm. opinion, there are people who would think it's bad. Um, Mm -hmm. Like what would that ideal concert situation look like in your experience? Like we're, we're saying short, no chairs, or maybe, or maybe, maybe half chairs, maybe half with chairs, chairs, but at least a no. space for kids to run around, mm-hmm. right? So, I've, I've heard um, a friend told me like, uh, like in the middle of the day, kind of yeah. Yeah. have coffee and donuts for parents or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. What, what before else? dinner time? Think about like Traverse City has this wonderful library for families. And if the concert was on the grounds of the library, you could do a, I'm going to make up a time, a 30-minute concert, and then immediately follow that with the kids running around in the library or doing something kid-related there um, so that so that you, you're pairing things that would be beneficial mm-hmm. to parents. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. Yeah. And one um, thing, Go ahead, Annie. Uh, one thing that the Virginia Symphony does um, and this other um, symphonicity, which is another... Um, regional orchestra around here um, with their kids' concerts is uh, they have what's called an instrument petting zoo. Like I was just going to say that. After the yeah. concert, yeah, 
where the kids can touch and play and, you know, see the instruments up close. Um, and that's a great way to just introduce them to all the instruments and get them more engaged in listening. Yeah, the uh, Ann Arbor Symphony next door to where we live does the same thing. So. Yeah. I was, uh, th- uh, this is just an idea that uh, is coming right off the top of the head right now, but um, I wonder that, you know, because your, your organization is mostly doing new music, right? Mm-hmm. And I, personally, I wouldn't want to, you know, kind of censor the types of music that get performed just based on, oh, well, kids won't like that. I don't know. Like, kids. They're some of the most open minded people. Exactly. Oh, I, <laughs> but I wouldn't, I would never do that. I would, right. So, but I think that, but I also think it's a good idea to maybe like to give children in particular and probably more so the adults, um, context for the piece mm-hmm. and like, here, maybe like even even giving the kids like like a concert coloring book. Oh, that's nice. You know, like maybe stealing do, that idea. Yeah, do it, do it. I don't yeah, have a no- visual. Yeah, visual aid is great as like a supplement to the music. That's one of the things that uh, the first um, family Virginia Symphony concert we went to. It was like a storybook concert where they projected on a screen pages from children's books and then the symphony played accompanying you know songs that kind of matched with the books um and to have some sort of yeah visual stimulus either you know projected or yeah a coloring but something that they can hold in their hand anything that gets multiple sensory things going right that's that's a great idea rob and I think so, you, you could also like it doesn't have to be on you to you know provide all the things for this you know if you just like if you have three pieces on the on a thirty minute concert and give them just three like three pages and it's, it's like bring bring your crayons bring your colored pencils and stuff like that I don't think it would have to be necessarily a huge financial burden for you to do this but I do think that it would be it would it would not only give them something to do and also while they're doing that they're listening Mm -hmm. and i you know it might it might give the the kids and the parents an opportunity to to have something to talk about because you know trying to talk to a five-year-old about the music they just heard is (laughs) challenging to say the (laughs) least trying to talk to a five-year-old about anything they just did is cha- mm-hmm. is challenging. So maybe having that thing in front of them that you know you're giving the the kids and the parents an opportunity to actually talk about music, where you know they the in, in any given other day the parents might just be there to like kill some time, like have something to do on a Saturday. Yeah. So first, going back to the repertoire thing, I so I had this experience with my niece. When she was between, well, when she was five weeks old, my wife and I babysat her, and the only piece of music that would calm her down was Synchronism Number no. One by Mario <laughs> Davidoff. <laughs> That's great. So, so from like age five weeks to eight or nine weeks, 
I would get texts from my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law like, who is that composer? Sent, what are other links? Send me other that pieces? piece. Yeah. So I f- I'm, I'm very st- staunchly in the camp that like children will enjoy anything that, that and in particular, I have a theory like with a baby, like they're probably just so bored that like that Dabadovsky piece has so many different timbres in it that was probably interesting for her I don't know well I'll have to when she gets a little older we'll have a debriefing session or something (laughs) but like I would never and and Rob with what you were just saying like give the parents something to talk about with their kids like if the kids are energetic and doing different things if it's a piece that has like interesting sounds and that sort of thing that's more like in moments is really uh, memorable like mm-hmm. boulez or something i mean i boulez would be really hard to put on but like not not like a beethoven symphony where you're expected to sit there and follow the story for 10 minutes per movement or something like that but something that has like oh did you like it when the cellist like hit the cello with their bow or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's probably more effective at like getting a talking point for a young child. Yeah. I would assume. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my two my two uh, girls they routinely dance around the house to Rite of Spring, and that's great. And actually, um, when uh, now I can't remember if it was Violet or Sloan. I think it was. I think it was Violet. Um, the the first time like as a as a dad i ever kind of like was swinging her and then kind of like you know kind of threw her up in the air and caught her again it was also to ride of spring she had a great ride of spring is very big in this house (laughs) (laughs) that's great (laughs) i mean i think do you garrett do you kind of have a plan for yourself as a composer do you know when you're gonna get things accomplished have you thought well, about that yet? Fortunately, in terms of deadlines, I don't have a lot to manage. Like in the initial um, weeks or months that the that the baby's here, you've kind of and given so, yourself some space, or the world has given me this. Well, space. Our, well that's fine. Good, though. You know, that's the, good. The, yeah, you I mean, need it. It's okay. I don't. I, I don't mind at all, and and I kind of see it as a little bit of an opportunity to figure out what the schedule I need to meet the the childcare demands that I have to do, and then like where can I fit in other stuff? It's kind of I see it as sort of a focal point of a purpose and 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 being accountable for my time because it's just going to be so much more limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so my plan, t- to answer your question, my plan is to really take note what the availability is. And I think for the first, like basically for the time that my wife is on maternity leave, I don't think I'm going to get anything done. You will not. <laughs> yeah, that is a good and, idea. Yeah, And I'm not planning on it. And I have other projects that I'm trying to hit a stopping point on before that happens. I mean, what's challenging is I do have to teach this semester. Now, fortunately, it, I'm only teaching one class, and it's it's very close to where I live 
If you follow me on Twitter, you know that I complain a lot because I've taught at a school that's over 100 miles away from our house, but I'm not doing that this semester for obvious reasons. And so, like, it's much, the teaching is much more manageable, but I have other things that I'm doing too. And I'm trying to get everything to a point where, like, if for six, eight, 10, 12 weeks into us having this new baby, I'm not able to really work on that. That's not the end of the world. Um, And then once we'll do a little bit of daycare. Mm -hmm. And what's very fortunate is that um, my wife's family lives in the area. So they, Mm -hmm. they're going to, they're offering to do a day of daycare a week so we only have to pay for two days a week if we wanted to do three days a week. So like I'll have a, there will be a schedule given to me that I can work around. And so kind of my, it's to use a sports analogy, it's like I'm going to play with what the defense is giving me, <laughs> but I have to figure yeah. out what that is first. Yeah. That's great. I think you're wise to just allow yourself, to, you know, that t- those first three months are just so intense and exhausting and i i foolishly thought that i would have time to get stuff like i had to finish grading final exams and stuff when i was on leave and i regretted it deeply because it's just almost impossible and you just want that time to just be fully focused on your family for sure those early months so that's a that's a good plan (laughs) in the in the year following each child i barely wrote anything you know, like it was, you, you can actually like on my website, I list everything by year and you can see like 2014 and 2016, there's just nothing. There's like one piece or, or, or maybe like I finished something like right before Violet was born and, you know, and, uh, and then the years after it's like, Oh, I shot through like five or six pieces, which just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but but yeah, there's just, um, I will say this though, um, when they're small, you have more time than you think you have. When they become mobile and active, that's really when the time goes out the door. Um, so like one of the, um, one piece of advice that we were given uh, with our first was, travel while they're still little you know Mm -hmm. and we did we went to um we went to thailand when violet was only 15 months and the philippines when she was only like 16 17 months or something like that Mm -hmm. um just because it's like you know we're we're carrying everything we need with us and they don't need a seat Right, they fly for free before They fly for free, yeah, so... This is really interesting because I'm having a piece performed in Japan in October, Mm -hmm. and Shana's like, we gotta go, we gotta go. You should. no, well, now now she's gonna be very excited. (laughs) We're we're gonna go to Japan. (laughs) Yeah, I took my daughter with me to two conferences before she turned one, and uh, I mean, fortunately, I was able to... The only way I was able to do it is the first one, my mother came with me, and the second one, my husband came with me, because I couldn't have done it, like, by myself with her, but, um, 
yeah, we flew to New Mexico for the SCI National Conference, and I flew her down to Florida for the Electroacoustic Barn Dance um, when she was under a year, both of them. Um, That's right. Your baby has been on the podcast. Yeah, she has. <laughs> we did a we did a podcast at SCI National, and she's in the background banging on something, yeah, cooing and whatever. Um, so yeah, I I second the traveling thing. I've I've never flown internationally, but um, you know, when they're little and you can just hold them in your lap, and especially for me anyway, while we were still nursing, it's a really easy thing to just nurse them on the flight, and um, they sleep and yes, good. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to, uh, Rob, I'm really glad you brought up the, you know, challenge of the, the lack of composing in the first year. And that was something I wanted to pose to both of the other parents, because that's something I've been. I also only wrote one piece before Jenny turned one. And now she's, you know, uh, coming up on two. And I've written one more uh, piece, yeah. an orchestra piece. So, you know, my output has slowed or slowed down significantly um and i'm about to have another one so i don't know <laughs> how much it's going to pick up between now and may but um yeah but that's something i have been kind of struggling with or worried about or not knowing you know how other composer parents have kind of gotten back on their feet after having a kid i feel like i feel like this summer i finally like she turned one uh, in April, my semester ended in May, and then she was still, our daycare, the only option was a 12-month daycare. They didn't have, like, a summer off option, which actually ended up being a really good thing because I kept her in daycare over the summer. I could pick her up, you know, like, we did shorter days at daycare, but I still, I finally had, like, a window, a real window of time to write and to get, you know, get things done and feel like a composer again. So that was good, but, you know, this summer I'll be out again with the next one so i'd love to hear from both of you about how your productivity waned and waxed with having kids <laughs> um i'll jump in when when i was pregnant with my daughter i had not finished my dissertation yet and i foolishly thought having no other composers to talk to about this because i was the only female composer in, in any of the programs I was ever in except one. Yeah. Um, I foolishly thought, oh, well, I can, when she's born and she's napping, I can be composing and finishing my yeah. dissertation and doing all the things. And that's really just not what happens at all. Uh -huh. when, when the baby naps, yeah. you nap. You have to sleep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so my productivity also waned just a lot. And I started a lot of pieces. I worked on pieces. I really struggled to finish anything for several years. But again, single parent. Right. right. So, um, you know, and my folks at that time lived in Florida, and I was up here, and so I didn't have that kind of backup Right. Um, so if anybody's listening to this and is in that situation, I was writing when I could. It usually meant I was writing when she went to bed, which for me was a learning curve because I am somebody who gets up at 5 a.m. and does my writing. My best creativity is first thing in the morning. Yes. So that was a very hard learning curve for me. Um, mm -hmm. But you, you figure it out. You do it. And you figure it out because if you want to do something, you work through it. I will say on the back side, now that my child has gone to college, my adult has gone to college, um, 
I love her and I love it when she's home, but the last two years have been fabulous. Um, <laughs> I am performing more. I, I can take a sabbatical. I applied for and got a sabbatical, which I could not do when she was home in junior high and in high school. I wouldn't even apply for one because I couldn't be gone uh, right. while she was in those ages. Um, and I'll have a sabbatical in a year and, and she'll be at college and that'll work out just fine. And I'm writing more than I ever have. And this is the time where I have become involved with adjective and with traveling and with doing things. This is sort of, I feel at this age that I am an emerging composer hmm. because I was not able to do any of those things right. before. So mm-hmm. it's, that was just my path. Well, that's really well, great I- to hear. I've heard from Sharita to echo that with things I've heard from friends who have kids and are trying to do the like big deal composer thing and have a family. It's just completely incompatible. Like uh, I I have a friend from Michigan who was working on a very high profile production of a, a a theater piece that he did all the music for and the people he was working with didn't understand his concerns about like, I don't, he would travel to where the rehearsals were would happening. And they were like, well, the director doesn't want to rehearse this day. And he's like, well, I'm here for three days so I can see my family and people don't understand. And it's, um, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's unfortunate, but. People with families understand. People without families struggle Mm -hmm. to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it gives you a lot of perspective because the it makes you look at your life before kids and kind of understand how work focused you were, and like nothing else matters, you know. And it, in, in some cases for me, it, it kind of opened a window to like, oh, that's why, you know, my wife and I were fighting so much in that, in that period, because like, you know, I was an idiot or I was an asshole. I was only focused on work or, or something like that. And having, having something completely outside of work that consumes your, your focus is a good thing in a way. I think it, you know, it just... Like you say, Sherry, uh, um, people with people with kids understand. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think uh, for me, it's been so my husband commutes further than I do for work. So I pretty much do all of the daycare drop off and pick up, um, which, you know, has been challenging to say, like, take care closes at six. I have to leave. By 5.30, you know, I used to teach evening graduate classes and we've had to, you know, I've had to reschedule those or move things around or whatever. But, you know, my work life really has to exist from nine to five now because that's when I have childcare. And same with you, Sheree, like we don't, all our family is long distance. So, you know, it's, it's the daycare and that's it. And, um, you know, sometimes I resent that and I like, you know, feel like oh, at five o'clock I still have like two hours of work I need to do. But... But when you have a kid, it's like, well, it's just going to have to get done some other time because now I have to go and be with my kids. And it forces you to have a work-life balance that I think in 
academia we lose track of so easily when we don't have something to like force that on us so yeah like now you know we have to be home in the evenings because she goes to bed early and like my husband and I see each other at night you know where I might have (laughs) stayed stayed out or gone to to every concert I could have gone to or you know we might have been meeting out at the bar with friends whatever which that don't get me wrong I kind of missed that part of my free child <laughs> life but that comes um, back but you know yeah but there's like family time now that we like didn't have before so well you you mentioned the big a academia mm-hmm. and like part of leading into us um my wife and I deciding that we wanted to you know effort to have a child I turned down a teaching job mm-hmm. that was in it was not tenure track but it was full-time and but it was in a location that didn't really work and it just didn't make sense in a family situation and like mentors of mine who I talked to about that was like if you turn this down you might never get another offer like this and which I I mean if I never get another offer like that it's because higher education and with the arts and humanities is like severely fucked on a lot of levels because (laughs) we've decided that publicly funding higher education is not worthwhile. My soapbox is on another podcast (laughs) for sure. But, uh, but it's, it's interesting. Like we, and we bought a house where we live and, and my, and my, fortunately my wife is more gainfully employed than I am. But, uh, it's like interesting to, uh, Make, making choices like that where maybe some people might look at you like, what are you doing and that sort of thing. And But mm-hmm. there's a huge benefit with it to, to facilitate family stuff. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. if, mm-hmm. if you never get another job offer like that, first of all, I, I severely doubt, I se- seriously doubt that, sorry. But, but secondly, if you never do, what, the minute you look at that baby, you won't care. Yeah, that's the plus side of all of this. You will find other things because you're driven to do that. It will work out. When I I saw when I I started at Interlochen today, that made me feel that way. Good, good. When I started at Interlochen, um, I started at the academy, and the first summer they offered me a summer teaching job, and my daughter was then two, about to turn three. She turns three over the summer. And they said, could you teach four classes? And I said, well, could it be from like 8 or 8.30 in the morning until noon? Could you put all the classes together so that I'm out here for a short time and I can go home and take care and be with my child at some point during the day? And they said, no, we can't do that. And the times they gave me for the classes would have made me gone from home all day. And in fact, the childcare would have cost more than the salary they were going to pay me. Mm-hmm. So I there had no yep. problem saying no to that. And I said, well, look, do me a favor. She's two. She's about to be three. Ask me again when she's seven or eight, if you still need mm-hmm. somebody, if you still want somebody. Well, by the time she was seven or eight, I didn't want to teach in the summer. I enjoyed my summers off. I enjoyed my time with my child. And I, I didn't want to teach at that time for eight weeks and eventually it became six um, and essentially not make any money. Right. So that was my balance. That was my choice. But that was my balance. The summers mm-hmm. were mine. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a great arrangement. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of, um, you know, 
going back to like keeping well keep keeping the work life balance um as as balanced as as you can i mean one thing that i'm able to do with my position right now um which has been very good and somehow every semester i i keep making it work but basically i know that monday wednesday friday i'm always going to be teaching a theory class so I've arranged for all my electronic classes to also be on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I've arranged for all of my lessons to be on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So Tuesday, mm. Thursday, those I have nothing. Those are completely free and that's when I do stuff. You mm. know, that's when things get done. Now I I I have to say that because like Monday, Wednesday, Friday are just go go go, like there's no break from from 8 30 to 5 and annie like you i'm because my wife works uh 8 to 5 i'm also the one that's that are that's doing the the drop-offs and the pickups mm-hmm. um so th- it's like th- the teaching times are very very uh prescribed and 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 set in stone in a way. And I, I'm kind of, I'm at the point where it's like, I'm not going to move it. Like you're, you're just going to have to figure out some way to fit into this Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. And it, it has worked every, every semester that I've done it. And, uh, it's been, it's been really great to have those, those full days where you can just go in and say, okay, I'm going to compose for three hours in the morning and then I'll grade papers or lesson plan or whatever. And just to just for, and for me that that's, that has been really important for me because I'm not the type of person who can just have an hour and do something with it, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's something that I've had to learn to do because I used to be very much the same way. And, um, before, this job and certainly before having a kid, I would, that would be what I would strive for as well. But, um, with the combination of having to kind of compress my schedule into that, you know, no more evening classes. Um, and also just like, I unfortunately have not had that. Like I just seem to always have classes every day of the week or whatever. And so I've just had to force myself uh Sheree like you I I, my ideal composing time is like 8 a.m to noon like that you know is like my best time but that's just out the window now like that's just not gonna happen again for a long long time so yeah I've had to figure out how to like this last semester finishing this orchestra piece I mean um like you were saying Sheree I've had to first of all kind of concentrate my my most um Productive time, obviously, well, and this is true even if you don't have kids, is over the breaks, right? Over summer and um, winter breaks is when I get the bulk yeah. of it done. But um, to compose during the semester, I've had to force myself to learn how to compose with having a 45-minute window or like a one-hour window or whatever. And it's so easy to spend that time like grading or doing emails or doing things that are more mindless that need to get done. But um, I, this last year, just like forced myself to, all right, you know, I have in between 11 and one between classes. So I'm going to spend an hour of that composing and, you know, grab a lunch and then get ready for my one o'clock or whatever. So, um, that has been challenging for me and I miss those, you know, that's why the summer and the winter breaks are so such a relief because I can finally get those long chunks. But, um, if I'm going to get anything done at all during the semesters, I like have to learn how to do those little, little bits, which Rob, I'm like you, I don't, I don't prefer it that way, but 
kind yeah. of had to had to make how, it happen. How has it been going for you? <clears throat> I mean, it's slow. Like I said, the my first year uh, after she was born, I didn't really get my, I mean, I wrote one piece and it was mostly over break because I just, and also I was just not very focused and I was, uh, you know, the yeah. added, the added thing of, I wasn't, you know, she didn't sleep the night until she was almost a year old and I was nursing and then pumping at work and all that stuff is just another level of, <laughs> uh, distraction yep. and exhaustion and all that stuff. So, um, <laughs> but this last year, um, uh, this past fall, coming back, you know, when she was already over a year old and having had a productive summer, I kind of took that energy of the work that I had done over the summer with me. And I think it, it got better this last fall. I mean, I did manage to, you know, I took kind of my longest chunks of breaks in between classes and just I mean, put it right in my calendar and blocked it out of, you know, told my students I would not be available for this like two hour block or whatever. And um, yeah, it's it certainly I think I still have a ways to go with figuring out how to work more composing time into my schedule. But um, I mean, I managed to finish a piece. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. I think so. that's the thing I have to do more of is like on the schedule, even though it looks open, like just block it off and and like you say just unavailable yeah like don't well, even knock i'm not gonna answer I absolutely yeah and i literally well. i literally put yeah i literally put composing time on my schedule on my door because i think it's important for our students to know that we are practicing artists who also need time to work on our craft that you know we are supposedly modeling to these students right so <laughs> i put that on my schedule you know composing time literally sometimes would lock my door um and uh that's it you know turn off my wi-fi so i don't even have like yep. emails coming in and just you know even if it and that, when i when i can delete ex like distractions uh 45 minutes actually does turn into a pretty productive amount of time so. yeah it's good point. and it's something Garrett, that. to think oh. about you've really you're really going to have to do this for yourself but if I may add, don't try to do this for yourself for the first few months or possibly even the yeah. first year. Don't worry about oh, this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. but then yeah. but then set some boundaries and some limits and carve out that time again. Yeah, right? and yeah this was after she turned one. I did not do this the yeah. first year of her life, yeah. Fortunately, the one commission that I have in the works, like we were talking about details and in November, and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to start working on this piece, like, until July or August at the earliest. And people are understanding about that, the people I've been talking to, at least. All, all of you talking about this reminds me a lot of, I will, I will give um, my dissertation advisor at Michigan, Christy Custer, a shout out just for modeling really good behavior at controlling her time and through her, due to her responsibilities as a parent, because she was like, I can only have lessons between these times. And um, when, be, because I was a doctoral student, I was like, at the end of the day, in that like time where sometimes our lessons would get interrupted and she was like, I have to go get my kid or something like that. And, yeah. and uh, 
I mean, she teaches at a school where all she teaches is composition, so she has a lot of agency over that and that kind of thing. But uh, um, I think that it should be expected more, or it should be more of the norm in academia that your teaching schedule can be flexible in those ways. I mean, even, like, as somebody who has adjuncted a ton, like, the, the fact that it's not easier to have all, to be able to consolidate your classes onto, like, one of the block scheduling sort of options is just absurd. And and I'm sure it's, as parents, as you've all said, like, that, that's a great th- power, too, if you have it, you know, to be able to... Yeah limit when you have to be on campus and that sort of thing. Some of you it too is teaching sorry. your students. So I think you are absolutely correct that it's too bad academia doesn't help us do this as human beings. But I think it's on us too to teach our students. I'm coming at this, remember, because I teach high school students. So I'm, mm-hmm. I've got a different age that I'm working with. But so many times a student will come up and say, I really need to see you. Can I see you today? And they will say, I'm free at 6. And I will say, I'm off campus at that time. And they don't understand. But they're 17 or 16 years old. So then I just Mm -hmm. look at them and say, I have a life beyond being here. And I'm done for the day at this time, whatever it is. I can see you. You have a choice. But that's on me to teach them how to do that, you know, Mm -hmm. at that age. I don't know if that translates into the college level. But <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I think that's an important, yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Rob, you go, why don't you jump in on that? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, there, and it, it's, it's not even just like the younger college students or, or anything. Like I've had some upper level students recently, you know, who, who were, who need like stuff from me sent out, you know, for, for jobs or festivals or, or something like that. And they're like, could you send this tomorrow? And I'm like, you just sent this to me. No, no, I can't. <laughs> right. Like I'll do my best to get it out by the end of the week. But no, like, sorry, like my, your oversight of schedule is not my burden. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah, anyway, go ahead. Andy. Yeah, that's, uh, that definitely happens in academia as well. I agree. And um, I think part of it too is um, that, yes, yeah, sometimes students just, you know, in the digital 21st century age, like want everything now and immediacy and all of that stuff. Um, but I think also so, a, a lot of it is just the culture of academia, particularly in music, where, uh, you know, there's just this expectation of always going above and beyond and always, you know, being available at off times and, you know, kind of being accommodating to that just like workhorse ethic of, you know, we're here early, we're here late, you know, as musicians, we're going to be gigging late, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, I, obviously there is some truth to that. And I, so I was actually pretty nervous, you know, after coming back from maternity leave, uh, because, you know, there is this culture of in academia, not only from the student side, but from the faculty side of like, you got to be here longer than everybody else. You got to put in more hours than everybody else. You know, as someone on the tenure track, it's like you got to just, mm-hmm. they say jump, you say how high, like you got to just do it all. And so I was really nervous coming back. Like, what am I going to do? I have to leave by 530. You know, like, is this going to create a problem? And um, 
you know, I think that, I mean, I'm, fortunately my department is a, is a very supportive um, department and I haven't really felt, you know, pressured or whatever, but you know, that, that culture is certainly part of it. And, you know, even <laughs> if it's self-imposed guilt, you know, a lot of my colleagues stay on campus till 10, 11 at night, you know, and I just can't do that anymore, nor did I ever really stay on campus that late um, to begin with. But, um, but I think, you know, the students see that modeled this kind of like, just work till you drop mentality. Um, and so I've, I've actually worked on saying like, instead of saying like, oh, I used to kind of make excuses like, oh, I got to go, but not really specify why, or like, certainly when I was, um, pumping at work, which is a whole different thing, you know, I wouldn't, that's kind of awkward to talk about with your students anyway, but, um, but I think it's important to like, let the students know that we do have lives outside of academia. And now, you know, I tell them I have to leave at five 30 because I have to pick up my daughter and I have right. to be with her, you know, and it's important for them. I mean, some of my students are parents already, you know, and like, I think it's important for them to see that work-life balance modeled in their professors as well, that it's, you know, yes, we want you to work hard and you know rise to the occasion but you also have to take care of yourself and you know attend to other parts of your life other than your work so thank you there was one thing that i wanted to um to get get to at some point um garrett you said that you were um at least for the foreseeable future you would be taking um, basically yeah. all, all of the kid care in the summer, right? Yeah. Um, so it was not, was it this past? Yeah, it was this past summer. Um, so this past summer and the, um, basically the entire year, uh, my, my wife was, she took a job just, just because like, you know, um, both our kids were old enough and, um, like Violet was in kind of half day preschool four days a week and Sloan wasn't old enough to go to preschool. So she was still staying home with them, uh, during the days, but, um, you know, it, it helped, uh, financially just to have another working parent. But that meant that because Sheree, we, we did the same calculation. We were like, well, you could have this job during the day and we can, you know, uh, put them in daycare, but then we're, it's basically, you know, you're not making any money. So it doesn't make any sense. So we, so she took a job for like nights and weekends, um, which is basically, so for, for nine, 10 months, we basically didn't see each other. You know, we were ships passing, kind of passing in the night. You know, she would stay with the kids all day. I would come home. She would go to work. The weekends, she, you know, was working eight or nine hours. So, like, I was was home with the kids then. So, you know, you think about, like, oh, well, I, you know, I get home, put the kids to bed, and I still have some composing time or something like that. Well, that just, that just kind of flew out the window for me for, for a long time. And that wasn't so difficult. It was this next thing that was hard to get around. And that's that when, and I don't think you're going to have this, you you might, but I don't necessarily think you would have this problem 
um, right, you know, within the first year of the, of your, uh, child being born. But there's this thing that they're playing. Like my two kids were playing together. They were entertaining themselves and I'm there but I'm not necessarily engaging with them because they're off, you know, they're playing with Barbies or ponies or whatever, you know, they're, they're having a grand old time. And it's like, oh, well, they're self-entertaining. Could I do something right now? No, because 10 minutes later, like one of them is coming down crying about some kind of injustice or, or <laughs> I need it. I need a drink or I have to go to the bathroom or so. So it's like you have this time and especially during the summer, that's when I experienced it a lot. Um, it's like, I have all this time, but I can't do anything with it. And the guilt that starts to creep in mm-hmm. on like, I should be writing because mm-hmm. I, it seems like I have all of this free time, but I really don't. And that was kind of hard to come to terms with for myself in just yeah. that, like the, there's, there's all this time, but it's not useful for creative work. I don't know one single parent who's an artist of any kind, composer, creative writer, filmmaker, who hasn't made a statement just like that. And and we put that guilt on ourselves. And I think it goes back to what Annie was talking about, about the pressures of academia, the expectations that because we've seen other people do this thing and stay late, we feel we must do this thing, whatever it might be. But I do believe we're putting that on ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and and if anything can come from this podcast, just the encouragement that you don't need to feel that way. Yeah, right. yeah. you're right. still probably and going that... to, but right. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think allowing yourself to, you know, when you are with your kids, even if they are entertaining themselves, like that, that's still family time. You know, that you yeah. even just you as a parent observing them and being there when they have a problem or whatever, like. That's that's the family part of the, you know, work life balance. That's the life part. Mm -hmm. Right. And like I, you know, I have the same same thing, Rob, like my my husband works on Saturdays, so I'm alone with my daughter on Saturdays. And, um, you know, at first, yeah, I'd be kind of resentful of like, you know, I wish I could get something done. But now it's like, no, like that's my time with my kid. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll make time for the work other some other time when someone else is watching her or whatever. But like, um, yeah, I've, I've had to also let go of that guilt and be like, no, like this is this is the reason that I'm working hard so that I can right. enjoy my life at home with my kids. You know, yeah, that that compartmentalizing your life in a in a certain way is 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 valuable if you can if you can do that. You know, this is work time. This is fan. It is really hard. It's really hard. Like I miss, I I don't really get composing done on the weekends anymore. And Lord, I miss it. Like, you know, because that was, again, that was an opportunity for those several hours of uninterrupted time. And I just don't get that on the weekends anymore, which, um, you know, was hard at first. But now it's like, well, this is just the new, the new reality. So, yeah. yeah. But, but again, I encourage you that um, I'm on the back side of that. And that does come back around. Mm, that's, I'm that's going to hear. I'm going to develop a mantra based on this exchange about guilt that is that guilt is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to yeah. remember this conversation. I mean, I think there 
I, I guess the only thing that gives me solace is I think in our field, there's so many other things that people make you feel guilty about <laughs> for yeah. no good reason. And um, hopefully in, if in pursuit of a, you know, expanded artistic universe that welcomes everyone in different ways, like people won't want to make people feel guilty about the work they can't do because they're spending time with their family or for any other reason. So. Yeah. But I, but I think, I I think Shuri's right. It's, we put this on ourselves. Yeah. It's totally self-imposed. It's coming to terms with how to let it go and how to, how it, how to have it not affect you in such a negative way. Right. And how to not show our students that one of you was saying this, how to not show our students that so that we're modeling better practices. So maybe it's better for them in five years or down the road. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, you grow up Well, your student experience is just in that environment where, you know, you see your professors working their butts off and you see your, you know, classmates, everyone burning the candle at both ends. And so, yeah, I think it's important to model being a teacher who reflects that work-life balance. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it is totally self-imposed. You know, no one's going to be calling me up asking to do get your Saturday composing done. You know, that's just <laughs> like totally my own thing, you know. <laughs> so. Well, we should... We should probably wrap this one up, but there is something that I want to mention that Jamie uh, mentioned to me before we got on. When this comes out uh, next week, um, Jamie kind of clued me into uh, something that would also be coming out at the same time from the Adjective Teespring uh, t-shirt store next week we are going to have um, available from that t-shirt store uh, kid kid clothing Whoa! with, <laughs> with adjective uh, swag on it. Um, there are going to be, uh, <coughs> I'm not exactly sure what, what exactly it's going to be there, but I, I understand that it's like kid t-shirts and onesies. Nice. Um, and uh, they're going to say on the, it's going to have the adjective logo on the back, but on the front is either going to say, my mommy is a composer or my daddy is a composer. That's fantastic. Excellent. Right? So. Oh. If they list our names, I just don't want my name to be on the butt. <laughs> <laughs> and with the last on name the Van Man, and it's butt. very likely to be down. <laughs> <laughs> We'll keep, we'll keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you this much. Oh, we are man. definitely going to buy one of those. So. Oh, yeah. Let me pre-order yeah. some of those onesies. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, anyway, this was a good good chat. Good, yes. uh, good to have, um, you know, some, some fellow parents out there. Because I feel like, you know, it's... The, it's it's not that there aren't composers who are parents out there. There are a lot of composers who are parents out there. But at the same time, I don't I, really talk about it much. No, no. Well, parent, I, when parents get together, they're so excited to talk about adult things. If we got together just over drinks for real, we wouldn't probably talk about our kids. We'd be talking about the creative things we want to share with one another. 
Totally. So I love that we're talking about this. Yeah. I feel like I've gotten so much wisdom from all of you about things to think about in the coming uh, weeks and months and years. And hopefully I'll be able to recall them at the times when they'll be useful. (laughs) I I feel like that might be unlikely, but we'll see. Thankfully, you have this document that you is can listen that to is the podcast. There. Oh no! Did we tell yes, you well, about explosive diaper poop? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Watch I out thought this was going to be a yes. lot more about diapers and perineal massages. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank God it wasn't. <laughs> oh. No, but really, Garrett, thank you for your um, insightful questions as well. It was yeah. nice to kind of approach the conversation from your perspective. So thank you for Well, that. thanks. I mean, of it, I think it's very special that Adjective has so many parents who are a part of it. Um, we should also mention Andrea Rankmeyer is also an yeah, Adjective absolutely, parent yeah. who... Couldn't be yes. here because she's parenting her children. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. she is. Isn't Andrew Cody as well? Yes, he is. He is. Yes. Um. No. Is anyone else? I don't know. I mean, there might be secret babies. Oh, John, John oh, Sokol. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. He has. He has like four kids. So we're gonna have to have a sequel, Garrett. Maybe after your kid is born, when you like actually have like a ninety-minute uninterrupted amount of time again, which might be a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It might yeah, be a while. Might be a while. It might be in uh, two years or so. Um, uh, then we should have a sequel with some of the other parents. That would be great. I, I was thinking yeah. of a uh, adjective family reunion. Get all the kids in one place. <laughs> That'd be fun. Ooh. I've got a built-in babysitter. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> After we make all that money from those kids' clothes, we can fly everyone to the same place. There we go. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.